Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week we're discussing the TV drama Succession, which we're both currently obsessed with. Now in its second season on HBO, it's about a super rich family clearly inspired by the Murdoch dynasty, starring Brian Cox as the aging patriarch of a massive media empire. Each member of the family is horrifyingly fucked up in one way or another, and the show seamlessly blends Shakespearean tragedy with hilarious social satire. So this is my favorite show that's been on television since Mad Men, which is my favorite show of all time, and I worked hard to get you, Gavia, to watch this television (laughs) program, and I think you binged it in like a week and a half, two weeks? Oh yeah, and I also, it's like I went through several stages with this, because I watched the first two episodes a year ago, and I was like, this is good. If you like The Thick of It, the showrunner is a former writer from The Thick of It. It's got that kind of same style of humour as The Thick of It and Veep. But it is also, like we said in the intro, Shakespearean tragedy. It's very intense. It's got a lot of abusive family dynamics. It's very complex and multi-layered. So it's it's got that kind of combo. But after watching the first two episodes, I was like, I like this. But the humour is so intensely cringy that I don't think I can get through this. So I waited like a year until Morgan just browbeat me for weeks into watching it. And she was correct. And it's incredible. I also went through like multiple stages while watching it because as I was kind of getting through season one I kept skipping scenes and I was like I just can't watch this because it's too excruciating and I said I just remember telling someone like I don't understand how anyone could re-watch an episode of this show and now <laughs> I got to the point where I finished season two or caught up and I'm now re-watching episodes of the show I was like making my flatmates watch the wedding two-parter because I was like you need to understand this is a masterpiece just watch the self-contained wedding and you'll understand everything about the concept of drama and uh, they also agreed so It's very, very good in like every regard. Well, one of the interesting things about this show that someone else was saying this on a podcast was that like the ratings compared to like Game of Thrones are negligible, which was the case with Mad Men also. Like Mad Men was the most talked about show, but no one watched it. But everyone who winds up watching it becomes obsessed with it. Like no one dislikes this show once you have watched it. It becomes this addictive thing. It's just that you have to get over the hump. Yeah, also, just as an addendum to what I just said, this is not one of those shows where, like, it it gets good after a few episodes. That isn't kind of my experience. It's absolutely brilliant from episode one. Like, obviously, these shows are always better when you know the characters, but it wasn't a situation where I was, like, had to slog through some bad ones. It was just, like, I had to get myself in the correct headspace to tolerate being in the same room as these characters who are so painful and excruciating to experience. Like the rest of the Succession Phantom, I have gained the right level of sort of scar tissue to experience the masochism right well what was interesting about when this show first came on so i where there were like billboards all over new york or like you know the ads on buses and in the subway and whatever so i knew that it was happening and um jeremy strong who plays kendall who's kind of it's very much an ensemble show but if anyone is the main character he's sort of the main character especially in the first season um he is an alumnus of my high school so i know of him and i was like well i have to watch if Jeremy's in this show, but it looked just like a drama about rich people in a kind of boring way. And so I was like, well, I'm going to watch this, but I'll watch it at some point. And then slowly the buzz began to like ramp up for this show. And a lot of what the critics were saying at that point was like, I wasn't really into it at the beginning, but like it's sort of grabbing me. And then all of a sudden at the end of the season, like everyone lost their minds. And like my dad was texting me about it. And I was like, okay, something is happening. Like something has entered the water with this show. And right? it's specifically about Jeremy Strong's acting, which we will be talking about in depth in this episode. But um, 
Just to give like a bit more background on the concept of the show, probably as you can tell from the title, it is about the jockeying for position among these adult children of Brian Cox's character, Logan Roy, who is, you know, he's like a Rupert Murdochy kind of guy. He started off working class in Scotland, but managed to get to the point of being in charge of basically Fox News. But it's this empire that includes like theme parks and movie studios and all this stuff. And each of his children, in one way or another, would like to take over the business apart from one of them. So the oldest is Connor, who's basically the useless one. He's the George W. Bush of the group. And he's just an idiot who lives in the desert in like a really expensive mansion and just is a complete airhead. But the other three are involved in the business. So Kendall, which is the character uh, Morgan was just talking about, is the one who is most seriously invested in the business. So he is very much like, he, he knows how to do his job. He has plans for the company and he is quite serious. And then there's Roman, who is played by Kieran Culkin, who's just a catastrophic fuck up and is just like really rude and obnoxious and awful and useless. And then there is Siobhan, who's known as Shiv, who is um, the only daughter. And she's kind of made a career outside of the company, but she is probably the most competent of them. But because of sexism and because of the complicated family dynamics, it's like she's not really in with the in crowd. But even though Kendall is the de facto kind of heir he is so beholden to his father, both emotionally and within the kind of structure of the business, that it's not necessarily certain that he is going to take over. And it's super impressive just how complex this character is. Like, first of all, Jeremy Strong is not a man you would pick out of a lineup. Obviously, he's not famous and none of the people are in this apart from Kieran Culkin and Brian Cox. But like, he just has very sort of nondescript face, right? He's just like a 30-something white man with brown hair (laughs) and he is playing a rich businessman in a grey suit (laughs) and by the end of season one you're like okay this is one of the greatest actors of his generation and I want to die (laughs) yes well the the, like joke to me always about this was that like both Chris Evans and Jeremy Strong are from my town and Chris Evans is Captain America and looks like Chris Evans. And I was like, well, you've gotten famous and Jeremy Strong, Mr. Serious Actor, is like toiling away because he has a normal face. And uh, now he's done this. So congratulations to you. You've succeeded. But what's kind of amazing about the first season of the show, I think, and we're just going to like spoil stuff. I don't know how to talk about this without saying what occurs. Watch it. It's fine. I'll talk generically, but then it's hard to not get into what happens later on, especially since I do want to talk about the second season a bit. But the whole first season is set up basically with the idea that Kendall wants to take over the company from his father. So Logan, the dad, has a, I think it's a heart attack. He has some kind of, or a stroke. He has a stroke in episode one. So it's like the premise is you almost assume maybe they're just going to kill him off at the beginning and it's going to be about the other's jockeying position, especially since it's Brian Cox. You're like, oh, maybe they only paid for Brian Cox to be in one episode. No, no. (laughs) Right. And so the whole structure of the season is building up to him attempting to do this. And I think it gives the show a real like organizing force because it's a real ensemble. There's a lot going on with all the characters, but there's sort of like dominoes falling on top of each other, right? Like what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And I think from the first episode, 
it's really compelling and you have a sense of like what the fuck is happening here and the humor works so I was hooked from the first episode which again some people weren't I think because I had already heard like it's kind of a comedy right which I think some people didn't really get partially because of the marketing and that sense of having all of this crazy stuff going on like I think most of the other characters except for Logan and Kendall are basically comedy characters which isn't to say that there isn't occasionally like dramatic stuff happening with them but most of the show is really funny and then at the center you have this unbelievably upsetting relationship with this basically humorless man like Kendall does not have a sense of humor no he just is awkward and embarrassing and like a lot of the time he's kind of like a zombie because he's just subsumed every other part of his life into business success. But it's so different from other depictions of sort of driven men who are repressed, right? It's such a unique character. Well, and what I think is really interesting about the character is A, he's like a recovering addict. So he's had lots of drug problems in the past. And for most of the first season, not all, you will be shocked to hear because this is how drama works. He's not using drugs. So there's something kind of tamped down about him. And he's definitely the most serious of the kids about the business. And he knows certain things. And especially in the second season, you actually see that he kind of has the best business instincts of all of them. Like he gets certain things that the others, especially Roman, who's just completely useless, don't get. But, um... He's not like a genius, right? Like most of the other big drama shows like this, like Mad Men or Breaking Bad or whatever, Don Draper is a genius ad man. Or like Walter White is this genius drug dealer person, right? Like they have these unbelievable skills that they either have at the beginning or get revealed. And that's part of what makes Whereas them good anti Kendall is just privileged. Like the exactly. whole point is they're all just privileged and get endless second chances and opportunities. And so I think at the beginning of the season, he's kind of just this like buck up guy who's moderately okay at his job. And you're like, who are, like, what? Who are you? I don't, why am I supposed to care about you? And then by the end of the season, I was just like, oh God, oh God, no, no. <laughs> he sort of develops this bid to take over the company in a hostile way, as opposed to just becoming the natural successor to like the throne, as it were, because his father gets over some of the health issues. And his whole vision for the company is not like good. It's not like he comes in and is like, here's how I've decided that we will go forward for the next 20 years. And I have all these genius plans and initiatives and like, we're going to make all this money. It's going to be great. He basically is just like, I'm going to do things. Like, okay. It's like, he seems better than his father because his father keeps making all these very old fashioned choices, like wanting to buy network TV stations and stuff. And it's kind of interesting because like I, from the start, Obviously, at the beginning of season one, it's very clear that Logan, the father, is not competent to be at work. You know, he's got these serious health issues. Um, he should have just retired. But obviously, he regains his faculties as the show progresses. But I just remember seeing some comment from, I think it was like a TV critic about the show in season two. They were just saying, oh, you're starting to get the impression now that although everyone really reveres Logan, he might not actually be that good. And I'm like... How are you making this realization now? The whole point is that he's just very aggressive and blustery and that's the way a particular type of business just works in the West and it's not functional and just because the people at the top have got incredibly rich and managed to strong arm their way into deals doesn't mean that it's good. It's literally Trump. He is not Trump in really any particular way, you know, apart from he's come from Scottish working class roots, but 
the way in which all of his business negotiating skills are about being as much of an asshole as possible and yelling at people is absolutely Trumpy. And it is a very real, real life phenomenon. And you see the way characters around him try to echo that style and aren't quite as good at it or just like pretending to be nastier than they are because they think that's the way you become a good businessman. And it's like, no, he's not a business genius. That is the point. (laughs) I mean, clearly at some stage of his life, he oh, was. yeah. I mean, he's built this empire. Right. Because right? he built like 20th Century Fox, essentially, yeah. and like Fox News, which is called ATN in the show, or like Waystar Royco is the name of the big corporation, which they have a lot of fun with. It's just <laughs> like dire. They're all very real, real names. <laughs> yes. But you were right that his whole model is just like screaming at people. And now that he's older, he clearly has like lost some of his sense of proportion. And yeah. he's so successful that he assumes that he can just yell and anything will happen or work out the way he wants it to, which it becomes increasingly clear over the course of the second season that like that's just not, not necessarily going to occur. But the sort of central setup of the show within this structure of this media company and extreme wealth is this family dynamic, which you laid out with the sort of siblings. And this man is an incredibly abusive person and father. And so you're watching this abusive family dynamic play out in the context, oftentimes of these business dealings, which is not divorced from the money stuff. It's very much related to that. But you see how his behavior is sort of playing out through the business in an interesting way because he just gets to abuse everybody and because he has the money and because he's sort of made his children into these sort of non-functional people because of the way he is, he just gets to do whatever he likes, right? Like no one ever stops him. There's a great episode in season two where they're on a kind of business retreat and he, it's like a, frat hazing type situation like he makes these men including like his son-in-law basically like go down on the floor and like fight over a hot dog like it's absolutely chilling and horrible to watch but you understand the extent to which no one ever questions him on anything including this like humiliating stuff because he's so terrifying and so powerful that they're all just like it was just such a mesmerizing scene it's so horrifying And it's so real. And also because the show is so detail oriented, you can really see the different ways that everyone is reacting to it. And my favorite one was actually not one of the main characters, but one of the just tertiary characters whose name I don't even recall. Because you see this room of people who have been let into this incredibly elite event, which is like the corporate retreat for multimillionaires for this company. And obviously the characters who are closer to Logan kind of have a better idea of how to deal with him, even though they know they can't win in this situation. But in the background, you just see all of these extras looking really horrified or sort of awkwardly participating, which is what would happen in real life. But there's just one who's just like eyes light up with glee because he's clearly just a psychopath. And you're like, there would be one. There's probably more than one, but it's yeah. like fascinating to see the way the switches flick as it happens. Yes. I found that episode, I think it's one of the best structured episodes of the show, especially this season, but it was like unbelievably nauseating to watch and not remotely fun. But like the episode ended and I was like, this is my favorite show. I fucking love it. <laughs> Which kind of sums up my relationship with this at this point. Like some of the episodes are a little lighter. I mean, they're never light, but you'll have more comedy in one episode than the other, maybe. But um, it's 
reached the point where it's genuinely just like nauseating every week and yet I love it which is <laughs> and a- funny and laugh out loud funny yes they I managed laugh to out do loud both. in a room by myself watching this show <laughs> oh yeah there was one line last there was one line last week that I genuinely burst into hysterical laughter at I can't remember what it was now but um the Matthew McFadden character who plays Shiv's uh, fiance and then husband oh God, often has one-liners where I will literally genuinely like lose my mind. And they're very good at threading both those kind of one-liners, but also humorous situations in with just soul-crushing agony. Great combo. I love it. I mean, the reason why I love the wedding two-parter so much, which is the final two episodes of season one, is because it's the point where they just really unravel the ways in which every individual one of the characters is really sympathetic. And obviously they're all appalling. So you're not like, or at least I'm not watching this in a way that is like, oh, this is the character I hope ends up in charge. Because it's a fundamentally like morally bankrupt scenario. No, like they're all far too rich than any human should be. And the business they're in control of is very clearly evil. But throughout season one, like there's, like Morgan says, a lot of the characters are you know they are more comedic and Matthew McFadden's character Tom is definitely the most buffoonish like him and there's a character called Cousin Greg who's this young doofus who sort of becomes he becomes part of the inner circle of the family but kind of accidentally and he's not grown up in the wealth and privilege so he doesn't really know how to behave in any situation but he and Tom become this kind of double act and Tom is a businessman he is kind of stupid and he is goofy but he's also an asshole and it tries to be as mean as he can in the workplace because he's seeing the way that other characters do it. But he doesn't have the correct emotional intelligence to know how to be psychologically abusive in an effective way like Logan Roy. <laughs> so he's just not very good at it. And it's just perfect cringe humor. And he's got kind of some of the most, the thick of it or veepish moments in the show. But then in this two-parter, you kind of realize that he just genuinely does love Shiv but also, of course, Shiv doesn't love him as much and she's kind of trying to angle for an open relationship without negotiating it properly. And you just feel really bad for him because like, he is, no one in this situation knows how to be emotionally vulnerable or have actual conversations about their feelings in a functional way. And they kind of have that for each of the characters. And obviously Kendall is the one who has the biggest arc in those episodes and it's just agonizing and really beautiful to watch. Um, but... Yeah, they just have like little moments for every character where you're like, oh, I feel bad for them <laughs> somehow. Well, what the thing that makes the show so great, I think, is that so Tom and Greg, because they're not members of the immediate family, so Greg is like a Logan's brother's grandson and grew up in like a normal family. I think they show his mother once or twice the first season, and she's just like a person. Like he, this is just you know, and he kind of winds up again almost accidentally in with these people and. Um, He's the only one who's going to make it out of this alive. Like, he is fine. He knows how to keep himself safe. He is not a monster. And he's just, like, chugging along. Love Greg. And then Tom, similarly, comes from, like, Minnesota and just sort of somehow wound up in this situation. And as you say, well, like, he particularly takes it out on Greg in the first season, which is extremely funny to watch. And I think it's also, like, Shiv treats him like shit. And so then he needs to, like, take he it out on someone back. else. Yeah. And then when he talks to Shiv, he acts like this total lapdog. And then he turns around and talks to Greg and is totally abusive to him in a really 
humorous way. But as you say, he's not really that good at it. And Greg is sort of just like, what is this like happening? And I think the two of them are fundamentally just like not terrible people. Not that they're like great people either, but like they're fine. And they should probably and just also leave. Kind of, they also kind of are friends now, which is yes. quite cute. <laughs> and Tom, I just keep thinking like Tom should just go back to Minnesota and like be the manager of like a Bank of America branch somewhere in like the <laughs> suburbs and like have a nice boring wife and three kids. Like that should be his life. And he has accidentally wound up with these monsters and like cannot take it. Right. And you feel really bad for him on a lot of the second season because his marriage is awful, like really, really bad. And um, Matthew McFadden, I think is the like second best performer on the show. Everyone is great, but I think he is absolutely incredible because he's... It's really fascinating to see, to see him de-handsome himself because he's handsome, but he's not handsome when he's playing Tom. <laughs> uh, yes, but he's great at the comedy to an insane degree, but also in the moments where he has to act really upset, which are fast and thick in the second season, he's just incredibly good at that stuff too um so i think he's amazing but the two of them are kind of in their own category right because they're in the thick of this stuff but also are just like what is happening like how did we end up here and then you have the actual children of these people and they are all just fundamentally non-functional there's a great scene at the end of the first season where logan says to kendall he says something like, you're just a hot house flower, like you can't survive in the real world. And it's this horrible thing because like a parent to say, for the parent to say that to a child is monstrous. But he's not wrong. And it applies to all of the kids. Like they're all sort of can't deal in the real world to a certain extent. And it's because they've grown up with all of this money and these horrible parents. And I think the thesis of the show is kind of ultimately that it is impossible to be functional as like a normal person having grown up in this situation, right? Like this amount of money just cannot. Yeah. You, you and can't also do they're it. all obsessed with, they, they just want attention and recognition from yes. their awful, awful father who's been abusing them since childhood. And I think you're right, right? But I think that Shiv and Kendall, in theory, could just go and support themselves and be very rich on the investments they already have. But they can't because they're completely addicted to staying in the business uh, Roman is as well like Roman always wants his father to pay, t- pay attention but he's never going to because Roman's useless but also Roman really is a high house flower he would be in jail within five minutes if he did not have the Waystar Royal legal team bailing him out <laughs> so would Kendall so you know um, <laughs> I mean theoretically any of them could just go off and live on the money right obviously they have like billions of dollars and Connor the oldest kid who's from a previous marriage has done that like he lives in this like ranch out in new mexico or something and has a girlfriend who is a he pays sex worker a paid girlfriend and, like, <laughs> yeah but he's not really living in the world right like he's just no. living off the money and is completely deluded about stuff at the end of the first season he decides he wants to run for president and everyone laughs Which is and he's hilarious. like no, i would like to run for president and they're like sure okay the point where he explains what his oh my god policies are is hilarious because he's like oh i want to focus on the two evils and the two evils are masturbation and taxation yeah. he's like people need to masturbate less and i think we should outlaw taxes yeah <laughs> obviously of course why wouldn't that, that be your platform <laughs> yes i mean obviously the main reason that they are so fucked up is the abuse but because of the way the show is set up that and the money are fundamentally intertwined right the reason that this guy is so rich is because he is 
this way. And the show is kind of theorizing that those two things are inevitably interconnected. So what happens kind of when you watch the show, or at least this is my experience, is that because this is how we function as people, you want to sympathize with characters. Like that's just how it works, right? Like you want to find something in these people to sympathize with. And Kendall to me is by far the most sympathetic of the children for various reasons. He is not a good person and does various things that are definitely bad. But what I think is interesting with him compared to Shiv in particular, but also Roman to a certain extent, is that they've grown up with this abusive father and Kendall is not particularly an abusive person. Like he kind of tries to do it in the business to a certain extent, a little bit like Tom, but he just doesn't really have it in him. He's not good at it. He is just like something to be trod upon. Like his father continues. He, to ju- just- he also just looks really depressed sometimes when he has to do something mean. Yes. And in his personal life, it's just really interesting to see him. I mean, he doesn't interact with his family that much, like his kids and his ex-wife, because he's just busy all the time, which is very realistic. But you see that he he's still in love with his ex-wife who for very reasonable reasons got out. Yes. And he very much loves his children and he tries to basically be the opposite of his father. Like he's a very kind father. He tries to be very gentle with them. And they seed in various notes throughout season one and two to kind of illustrate how Logan must have been to his kids when they were children. And I just think it's just a masterclass in how you can illustrate that kind of thing without showing any flashbacks at all because almost every show is so reliant on flashbacks and this kind of shows when you are inventing any kind of fictional character you need to think about what their background is right and this whole show is obviously about their background and how everyone you know is a tree with many rings that goes down to the core and the kind of way that you see their kind of childhood play out with Kendall is you see in season one, kind of when Logan is still recovering from his stroke, there's a scene where he hits Kendall's very young son, who's probably seven or eight. And Kendall immediately is just like horrified. And you can just tell that he's not just reacting with horror that someone's hit his son, but it's also kind of childhood trauma. So you know immediately that someone was getting beaten up in that house. And it later becomes quite clear that was Roman. And there was like various conversations they have where they all have different memories of what it was. And it's simultaneously weirdly funny, but also really upsetting. And then in one of the most recent episodes, Logan straight up just hits Roman in the face. And there's just this moment where Kendall reacts with pure instinct and like stands in front of him and starts yelling his father in a way that he's never done at any other point in the show. And you're like, oh, you are getting such a clear idea of what that family dynamic is without them having to explain anything. And it's like, thank you. Well done. What a great and horrifying portrayal of various survivors of physical and emotional abuse. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, what I found myself thinking at the the scene with Roman and Kendall that you were describing, which definitely was one of the most affecting things this season. And in terms of like humanizing Kendall, right? You're just like, oh, oh no. Yeah. Clearly Roman was physically abused as a child. The sort of follow-up scene to that in the next episode, Logan essentially is like, I don't think I even hit you actually. And Roman's like, no, no, you definitely didn't. It's like, mm, great. But felt to me like probably Kendall had been sacrificed to protect the younger brother often in those situations right because like he's the oldest and is like jumping in front of him and he's the most emotionally abused 
for sure of the kids. I mean, they're all not that they're not all emotionally abused, but like he's yeah. definitely. But Kendall is up. like emotionally destroyed, whereas with Roman, he's extraordinarily immature. And he's got some sexual issues, which at first are just really funny and then later on are kind of tragic and funny. Uh, and it's just sort of like, he, he acts like a total walking erection and then you realise that he actually is impotent for clearly emotional reasons. And it just kind of unfolds in like a really compelling way in season two that I've enjoyed greatly. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. He, the interviews with the sort of creators and actors in the first season, they basically said that they didn't have a thesis about him. They just kind of were feeling it out in terms of the sex stuff. We're feeling it out as they went. And they kind of were like, we don't think, we don't think he has sex. We don't think like, there's something going on. We're going to just keep writing. We're going to figure it out. And then, oh boy, did they in the second season, they <laughs> sure went there. It's real wild. But so Kendall to me is like the top of the hierarchy of sympathetic like, I basically just find him sympathetic at this point. Like, it's so horrible, all the stuff that happens to him, right? And then Connor, who's the, the older one, is the bottom. He's not, you're not supposed to find he's him the sympathetic. Worst. He's, he's just, just terrible. Like, he's just a funny character, right? <laughs> and then Shiv and Roman are kind of in the middle in that I think the show does a really good job of making you sympathetic to them at certain points, because obviously they are also in the, the thrall of this horrible man. But then they do intermittently, especially Shiv, really horrible horrible things and you're like oh right you suck like i remember now so shiv with her marriage to tom is basically recreating in a certain way her father's dynamic with people i think she definitely does love him but she just expects him to do anything that she wants at any time she treats him horribly she has no regard for him as like a person and anytime he kind of tries to push back on that a little bit, she just like does not comprehend yeah. what is I going mean, on. I mean, aside from the couple of conversations they have that are directly about their relationship, where they're kind of discussing whether they're going to have an open relationship or not and that sort of thing, every single conversation they ever have is Tom talking about his thing and Shiv ignoring him so she can talk about her thing. It's just hilarious because every other conversation you see on the show is like a normal conversation. And every conversation between the, them is like just two massively separate people like standing on separate icebergs yelling at each other across the ocean. They are always talking across purposes and not listening to the other person. And eventually Tom will back down and kind of listen to Shiv. But they're still not, it's not a two-way conversation in any way. I mean, I think he is very much aware of what she's trying to convey. It's just that oh, yeah. he is desperately attempting to get her to listen to him at oh, yeah. all and she'll also do things like they go out to dinner at one point and she, he has said something that she's mad about and so she's like viciously blocking his clothing in front of people <gasps> they're having so dinner with like it's really bad and the open relationship thing like he finds out that she's been sleeping with like her ex-boyfriend for the whole run-up to their wedding, which she has not informed of him, needless to say. And they've just gotten married, and she's like, I don't think I can be monogamous. I think we should have an open relationship. It'll be great. And he's just like, okay. <laughs> also, they barely have any sexual chemistry. At that point, they do for that one scene, but most of the time, it's like there's scenes where he like tries to touch her and she shrugs him off and stuff, and it's just excruciating. <laughs> there's not a lot of sex happening on this show, in general. No, it's not a sexy show at all. And so... It's been interesting to me kind of watch the online discourse for the show and the character who to me seems to get the most, oh, they're so awesome, is definitely Shiv, which is wild to me because she's horrible. She's just horrible. 
And again, like there are moments. Well, first of all, she's very charismatic, which none of the others are. And Sarah Snook is very, very pretty. It just she's so pretty. <laughs> and the stuff that she does with her face are great. Because like the combination of a very glamorous, pretty woman on television and being allowed to move her face in funny ways is not a combination you often get because usually you have to just have like a very immobile face, right? And it's like because her her character's persona is that for a lot of the show she's working for essentially a, a Bernie Sanders analogue and her politics are more liberal than the other characters. But like it's not like anyone in the show is like, oh, I'm super Republican because kind of the point of it is that they're all so rich that they're elevated above any of this and they don't actually give a shit. But she is the more liberal one and like when she talks in public it's sort of like, oh, she's the forward-thinking woman and it's very feminist that she's successful. And it's, if you're kind of looking at that iconography and maybe not thinking about it super deeply, I can see why you would side with her and want her to succeed. But wanting people to succeed is not really the way I'm enjoying this show. And also she is despicable, even though I think that she's just so appealing and I love Sarah Snook in that role so much. But she's fucking terrible. This is the thing, right? <laughs> it's like the one instance of like reverse sexism actually... <laughs> existing i think sarah snook is great also like i think she's doing such a good job in this role but like she is a very beautiful white woman and like there aren't very many female characters on the show and i think it completely is that happening people being like oh my god i love her clothes so much i was like that is not what what no stop it (laughs) it's ivanka trump (laughs) right exactly and the one thing i thought that was a bit weak about the first season which otherwise I thought was literally perfect, was that she has this political job and the show clearly wants you to think that she's like really great at this job. And I never really saw any evidence of that being the case. She does a couple of things that are actually actively bad. And the sort of plausibility of her being outside in this way and like really competent and good at this stuff just never really rang true to me and interestingly they've kind of gone in the other direction with the second season I think that they probably had some sense that they had been a little bit weak on that character Um, whereas all of the male characters are extremely well fleshed out in the first season and it's not like she's written terribly I just felt like there was a little bit of something that wasn't quite clicking and in the second season they've given her a ton of stuff to do which I really appreciated basically the setup is that Logan says actually I think you're going to be the person who will be in charge of the company after me. Um, but he doesn't tell the rest of the family or anyone, in fact, except for her, which immediately you're like, well, this will end in tears. Like Huge this- alarm bells. And the yeah. only reason she swallows this idea is because she's just so desperate for it to happen that it's like when you just make yourself believe that something's going to happen. Yes. And then she basically handles this as poorly as possible because he is, I mean, he's just tormenting her psychologically, right? And she does not, it's bad. So Holly Hunter has a sort of recurring uh, role on the second season, which is incredibly fun because Holly Hunter is fantastic. And she's playing this kind of mysterious, conniving character, which is which is fun. But she says to Logan, she's like analyzing all of his kids. And you can't really tell whether she is just saying stuff that she thinks will be beneficial for her to him to hear or what. But she says like, well, Shiv uh, thinks she's smarter than she is. And I was like, that's it. That's exactly correct. Like, 
she is definitely intelligent. Like she's not an idiot or anything, but she clearly thinks because she's grown up in this environment with these brothers who are all just like wildly fucked up that like, she's the really smart one. And she has these kind of other politics and whatever. And I was like, but actually, if you look at your behavior, like this is not the behavior of like, I mean, she's, she's, yeah, she, she is incredibly selfish, but also she is, definitely the best kind of public speaker and she actually would be the best person to have at the forefront of the company because she can go and do like a TED talk or whatever and she can talk to people but there's actually not really any evidence that she is a strategist especially a long-term strategist in the same way that definitely Logan is I mean Kendall kind of is in the sense that he understands the business world much more intimately than she does but none of them really are great strategists no <laughs> well this is the thing is that like he logan doesn't want the business to go out of the family but he has created these people who will all be bad at being in charge so like that's the problem you've created for yourself but yeah she's good at being a public person but she would be terrible at the job of running the company and part of it is that like when you put the children in a room together they just can't function normally. So there's a great scene where they're having a big dinner with the owners of like a different media company that they're considering buying and they need to impress them, right? And the only person who manages to conduct himself in a normal way is Kendall, who just like has a nice conversation with someone. Whereas Shiv and Roman are just like going at each other, making each other look horrible, which is not helpful for this. And you can see Logan watching across the table with this expression of like, I am going to murder you. And it's one of those things where you're like, okay, Shiv, you are supposed to be a like mature adult in the room here, right? And you can't get it through your head that you need to stop making fun of your baby brother. Like, stop. Stop it. Like, oh my God. And, but that's the stuff that makes the show so good is because you see that these people just can't function. They just can't do it. And it's because their father has made them sort of compete with each other for their entire lives. Like, that's how he's managed to sort of be the person the most in charge, right? If the siblings actually had positive relationships and could sort of have, like, unity... Then, cooperate in any way <laughs> right then they could just be like fuck you we're not dealing with this anymore but if they're all separate and he's the sort of god figure then he still gets to control all of them and so the whole thing is just this like incredibly intelligent depiction of that kind of abusive family relationship while simultaneously challenging you in terms of the character's poor behavior right because you want instinctively to be like oh man this sucks for all of them and then like Shiv will be horrible to Tom or Roman will be horrible to Kendall or just generally be like a little shit and you're like oh god <laughs> but, like, but you suck <laughs> which is why the show is so smart I think we should talk about the setting now because there's two things yes. yeah there's two things I really want to talk about one of which is just the show's depiction of wealth and luxury and the other one is the depiction of the media which is the thing that is just always very good for online people who work in my industry love to talk about this show for very good reason but kind of about the wealth thing I think as we've mentioned earlier there are a lot of shows that are just about rich people or specifically about rich family I I watched Dirty Sexy Money which is a show about a family like this and their lawyer uh there's Gossip Girl I mean Shit's Creek is kind of nominally about the same thing except it's a riches to rag story where a family like this loses their money and has to go and build, like live among the commoners. But one thing all of these shows always have in common is that 
because they're all about wealthy, glamorous people. They are very glamorous. And kind of the problem is that even if you're trying to depict these people as awful, they always glamorize them to some degree. And that's a conversation that kind of always happens around these shows. It also happens around things like Hannibal. It happened with Mad Men. And it's sort of like, oh, just because stuff looks really good. Whereas with this one, there are episodes that are really glamorous. Like the wedding episode takes place in this massive castle because their mother, who is estranged from Logan, is this posh English landowner, tremendously played by Harriet Walters. And there are various episodes that take place in parties but it becomes very clear after just a few episodes that no one at any juncture has an iota of fun at any point right so every single episode almost has some kind of set piece where it's like a party or a corporate event or a holiday or they go to their big mansion in the Hamptons and whenever anyone's at a party they're always doing one of two things stressing out about some family dispute that has upset them or trying to create some kind of business deal and they're all just having conversations about business even in the middle of a wedding they're not having fun (laughs) at all and it just doesn't make it look glamorous like even at points where they're just wearing nice outfits like it only looks good if you're looking at like a still image of the episode and it just doesn't glamorize at all it's like this is terrible and also to do with the depiction of like drinking and drugs this is a PSA for not doing cocaine because (laughs) like I mean we've all seen kind of dramas about addiction right but Kendall is just pounding that coke and not having fun at all it's just very grim and depressing and horrible yeah (laughs) the sex party episode's very good um it's a sex party with no one has sex no one has fun (laughs) the drug stuff is really interesting because Kendall is actually definitely more functional while on the drugs but also his life wild. sucks. So yeah. <laughs> you're like, mm. and when he goes back on them after having been sober, it's just, that's the best episode of the show period. Like it is just, Oh my God. I look forward so to rewatching that. Cause I actually couldn't watch. I just remember messaging you when he started to relapse and I was like, I actually can't watch this. It's too upsetting and horrible. And then after a few episodes, I was like, he actually is having a better time. Now he's having a worse time. <laughs> Well, it what's interesting is it allow it allows him to be slightly more uninhibited. I mean, when yeah, he, he first, expresses some things, yeah, when he first goes back on them, he is fully uninhibited in a way where you're like, oh my. And then afterwards, it's not like that, but there's just you can tell that he was so fucking stressed out and closed off when he wasn't doing anything that he basically couldn't function. And then when he gets back on the drugs, he can function a little bit better, but he's also on drugs, so he's has problems from that it's just really really dysfunctional the money stuff or like the you know accoutrements of wealth stuff is really interesting the show that that this has been most compared to by far is billions which is currently on um on showtime and is with damian lewis and paul giamatti about like hedge funds and wall street and stuff and damian lewis plays a hedge fund guy who is like outrageously wealthy And the first two seasons of that show are not nearly as smart as this in terms of being like, this all sucks. But they're pretty smart about not presenting him as like a great guy. The show clearly wants to appeal to both hedge fund people and people of our political persuasion who are like, actually, it seems like he sucks. And they don't glamorize it too much. But then the show basically gave up and was like, actually, this seems fun. And um, 
it is really interesting to sort of think about them in conjunction with each other because this show is so unrelenting and that show basically, because it's a Showtime show and they're designed to run for like 10 years and just be fun, basically just went into the zone of being like, cool. And what's interesting about that show is that it's not doing like super frilly rich person stuff because the way billionaires live currently is that like they wear hoodies every day. Yeah. So they have Damien Lewis in what is clearly very expensive grey fitted t-shirts. Yes. But yet somehow, like, the way he wears the hoodies, and because he's Damien Lewis, you can just tell it all costs so much, and he looks so good, and he takes private planes everywhere. And it's definitely not, like, the worst iteration of this, but you can, you just kind of get the sense of what is going on. I mean, something that's key with this one is you constantly see how much they're wasting. Like you see very obvious depictions of waste and incompetence. And you also see them being very unpleasant to just random civilians, basically like wait staff. I mean, in episode one, they just have this perfect moment that is just like a really good thing to put in a pilot episode, which is for a lot of episodes, I actually kind of found Roman, if not the most sympathetic character, then definitely kind of the most fun character. And I was like, oh, he's like my favorite sibling of the group, right? The the kind of idiot bitchy one. And then the whole family is kind of at this, like they're playing a baseball game together as kind of like a family tradition. And there's the son of some of their servants or employees is nearby. And Roman is like, I will give your parents a million dollars if you get a home run. And this kid obviously doesn't, but it's just like an emotionally destroying moment. And you see like how cruel this is to put that weight on a child who's just a complete stranger. And then you see like the child's parents comforting him and being like, oh, this is just the way it is. You just get like a really good impression of how they're acting just like evil kind of historical European monarchs, you know, they're just being foul and there's no consequences at all. And they just make sure that happens in every episode and it kind of prevents you from ever sinking into the mindset of just being like, oh, Shiv's dress looks really nice. Yes. And what's interesting about the clothes, I think, is like the dresses she wears in the wedding episodes are great. And like her hair looks great. Yeah. Like she looks really, really good. the rest really of the time, it's just always business wear. They're nice clothes, but I never look at them and think like, I mean, I... Don't look like Sarah Stuke, so I couldn't wear them anyway. But I never look at yeah. them and be like, oh man, I wish I could have that. Like, this no. should just kind of... And Roman always looks really good because, like, Kieran Culkin is attractive and he just dresses quite snappily. So he's sort of the one exception. But the other well, guy is just... skin-tight shirts and he has Hitler hair. Like, they've given Kieran Culkin Hitler hair. And he was always, like, posing with his jacket off. Yes. So it's like he's clearly a, like, little preening bastard. So he doesn't actually look good and then as you right to say like everyone else is just wearing like a gray suit so it's not like they're deliberately you know spending their wealth in a way that is like fun for them in that sense and then also like their residences are technically nice but like not anywhere you would want to spend time and Kendall i think just lives in this just like gray box that looks like a hotel <laughs> And I think it was an interview with Matthew McFadden where they were asking about shooting and he was like, you actually really don't want to spend more than like six hours in those places because it just becomes like really unpleasant and uncomfortable. Like there's just something about it where you're yeah. like, ugh. And they go to various exotic locales for the some of the uh, episodes where they're like on a retreat or whatever. And the scenery is never like shown in panorama of like the beautiful Hungarian countryside, right? No. They're just trudging along like... <laughs> 
having debates about stock prices and which person to undercut, never having any fun, and then something will go horribly wrong and someone will cry. Right. You know, so you have this much money and it all becomes sort of anxiety about retaining the money or having more money and then obviously the family issues. So the only, I guess the only person who's having any fun is Connor, who's like, I'm chilling at my ranch with my fake girlfriend, right? <laughs> Which, like, congratulations to him, I suppose. But it's a really effective way of showing that, like, this is not enjoyable for anyone. Like, it, it's just, it's not good. And it's very educational because, like, it, it, everyone just wonders in real life what the super rich are like. And the answer is they're all like this because you don't stay super rich unless you behave like this because if you have this much money then you've done awful things to get it or your family has done awful things to get it and unless you give it away to an extreme degree you are still going to be in this bubble of people who are behaving like this in order to retain their money and be completely separate from normal society yep correct i have nothing else to add so the media stuff which we should touch on also So the first season is obviously set within the world of this media company, but because Logan is kind of out of it, that's not really the main focus. It's definitely a part of the show, but they have majorly ramped that up in the second season to quite excellent effect. I think the first season is overall a bit stronger than the second season, although it hasn't finished yet. We're recording this after the seventh episode. The, because of the stuff with Kendall in the first season where it's all about like him attempting to achieve this one goal, it has, as I said, um, a sort of unifying theme, which the second season doesn't have quite so much, which is fine, but I think it's a, been a little bit more scattered. But the thing that it has that the first season didn't that I found really satisfying is all the stuff about the media. So you get more of the Fox News stuff because Tom has been in char- put in charge of that, and he is just not good and you see the degree to which like no one cares about the actual politics of this they just want to make money so like there's a um news anchor who is really popular and like young and attractive but who it turns out definitely has like nazi stuff in his past and they're desperately trying to justify not firing him and like more and more stuff comes out about his nazi affiliation named his dog after hitler's dog and they're like what's the different spelling and they're like oh hitler dog doesn't seem that bad (laughs) and so tom is like have you ever read mein kampf and he's like a few times and tom's like a few a few times i don't okay i don't know about this Um, so that's the one end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum is the sort of new media stuff, which had been seeded in the first season when Kendall bought this company, Valter, which is clearly sort of a reference to Gawker and also Vulture. And um, I think the outside shot of it was filmed at the New York Magazine offices and New York Magazine is referenced later. So everyone who works at Vulture and New York Magazine was just like, oh my God. And would you like to describe what happens with Walter. Yeah, so basically this will give you all a documentary style depiction of what happens to new media companies. You are probably aware that a lot of internet media companies, like where I work um, and the kind of the buzzfeeds of the world, uh, are routinely laying off employees. This is true across the board for any kind of print media as well. But there's lots of layoffs, there's lots of unionization efforts as uh, pushback. And it's often kind of characterized as, oh, this website isn't profitable or the Facebook algorithm changed. So we weren't getting as many hits as we thought. So now we have to fire people. But the reality is in a lot of cases, including for newspapers, that what actually happens is 
a bigger company will buy the uh, newspaper or website and then people who are only interested in money will just be like, well, this isn't profitable enough, which doesn't mean that it's not breaking even or that it's not turning a profit. It's just the same story of kind of Wall Street guys just gouging as much as they can and then selling the carcass for scraps. So what we see in this show is primarily from the perspective of the rich guys, which is really useful and informative because we see uh, kind of Kendall as the younger guy being like, we should buy Volter. It's a really good partner. You know, we've got this pre-existing kind of staff of people who are writing content, but also it's this very useful brand that we can use. And, you know, we can use it for data gathering. <laughs> and um, and you also kind of see the CEOs of this company. And Logan barely even knows what the internet is and just wants to buy more like terrestrial TV stations to do TV news. And what happens is because... Kendall loses this battle, he winds up having to gut this company, Volter. And there's just an episode where uh, he just lays off the entire staff in person. <laughs> but like, there's a series of speeches he does where at first he's like talking about trying to persuade the staff not to unionize. And then there's a second uh, speech where he just lays a bunch of people off. And I was just like, this is the most realistic thing I've ever seen. It was so realistic. Uh, I personally have never been laid off. I'm sure if I stay in this career, it will happen to me multiple times. Um, but, you know, I know many people who have and... We've all heard the tone and the wording of those speeches on several occasions. And uh, yeah, I just saw like a lot of people in my general field who've worked at places like New York Magazine and BuzzFeed and Vox and whatever, just being like, I've had flashbacks watching this episode. Like it was just, it was just painful. It's just exactly like real life. <laughs> well, all the specific conversations that he has with the CEO and other employees about the business were so particular and yeah, technical. There's like stuff like where they, they think that they've got more readers than they do because someone's been fudging the stats on the reader algorithm. You know, it's just like they're ugh, too real. They also had <laughs> fake headlines like projected on the back of the wall when they were discussing it that were all, there was, oh my God. It was like, is every Taylor Swift song secretly Marxist? And I was like, great. That's perfect. <laughs> perfect. When they do close it, it's like, we're going to keep, the, I think it was the food and weed verticals because they're the only ones that are profitable. Yeah. So well, that'll be fine. I was like, great, of course. So yeah, I think th there's a writer on the show who used to work at The Onion. And so they clearly have, Ooh. yeah, they've done their due diligence. They know what they're talking about. And the specificity with which they write about all the media stuff, I find really impressive because other media or like, you know, fictional media that attempts to do that, I found has recently, no one really knows what they're talking about. And this, yeah, I was it's like, either oh, really shallow or it's just like a very dated depiction of journalism, usually with like a hot young female journalist, you know, it's just yeah. like, it's bad and stupid. But this, this is basically the equivalent of Silicon Valley, the sitcom, which we did an episode on a while ago, which is just extraordinarily accurate and in many cases, directly prescient depiction of just awful Silicon Valley bros and their business decisions. And that's what it's like in this, you know, there's a subplot where like the, there was like a New York Magazine related subplot and everyone was kind of sharing a screen cap from it because Vox bought New, like, <laughs> New York Magazine last week and it was just like, oh fuck. I know, it was like, how? And then final brief notes, we should mention the music, which is composed by Nicholas Bertel who has done music for Barry Jenkins's films, among other things. The theme song has become such a meme on Twitter. 
it's like extraordinary. It's so fucking addictive. It's so good. <laughs> I mean, it'll get stuck in my head and then that's it for me. Like it'll just it just keeps playing. But people keep putting it over like other videos on the internet <laughs> to a degree that I mean, how how could anyone have anticipated anything like this? It is wild to me what Twitter will do when it just decides that it likes something. It's just really fascinating to see how a really popular thing gets sort of consumed by the meme machine in 2019. Like, obviously, memes have existed for a long time, and like, of course, but this show is being processed in that way, in a way that's quite interesting to me. Well, it reminds me a bit of Phantom Thread, right? Yes. Because Phantom Thread is also this combination of really intense emotional sincerity and also being like very funny and satirical and it has this really intense music and stuff and there's all these memes about it that are just very absurd and with this it's like you kind of need the absurd memes to just cut the pain <laughs> and it's it's especially fun with the music because the music for the most part like they have a few light-hearted sort of comedic pieces on that soundtrack but for the most part it's like very kind of sweeping epic score and it's almost all orchestral um there's quite a lot of piano like the the theme song that they have over the credits is a combination of piano and then they've got like a hip-hop beat so it's kind of the combination of old money and then new money business and then all of the rest of the score almost throughout the show kind of sounds like the score of a historical drama it's really interesting because like if you've heard any of nicholas Bertel's other music like the most famous thing he's probably known for is moonlight but he also did if beale street could talk we did an episode on that last year and i was kind of absolutely over the moon about that music it's like so moving and so gorgeous and what they have for succession is kind of this late 1700s early 1800s kind of vibe there's a lot of strings there's some piano there's also clarinets and then during a couple of episodes that are especially kind of royal themed they have all of these i think it's french horns it's definitely a brass section and they're playing literally a fanfare there's a moment where logan roy comes into the castle and there's a fanfare playing and you're just like this is a shakespeare drama and it's just such a it's such a great choice and also it's just a really good piece of music to listen to like you can just listen to it and be like fantastic well done to whichever 18th century composer wrote this <laughs> Yeah, I mean, with this, as with so much of the rest of the show, right, like, the balance between the comedic and the dramatic elements just works really well. Like, they have such a mastery of the tone. And Shakespeare is exactly the reference. Like, everyone has been saying this, and so much stuff gets compared to Shakespeare because he's Shakespeare, and, like, that's fine. I don't care about people making that comparison. Yeah, but it's literally fucking you know. King Lear, you know. <laughs> but, yes, like, it is so exactly relevant here because Shakespeare obviously had, you know, in the tragedies I'm talking about specifically, would have this like incredibly upsetting dark stuff and King Lear is the most upsetting of all of them. But then he'd have this like random nonsense, like comedy bullshit with like body jokes and whatever, right? I mean, because people wanted to laugh if they're standing in a theater for four hours. And um, this show understands that people also want to have fun while watching something upsetting. And like when they have the fun parts of the music, it's like watching one of the fun parts of when Matthew McFadden was in Pride and Prejudice because it's that kind of like chirpy strings, like it's like <laughs> a funny historical like Jane Austen story and it's like, ah, oh, so good. Yes. <laughs> I mean, everyone's obsessed with the show because it's amazing, but also like we've talked about this, basically TV doesn't make hour-long dramas anymore. Like they, they just don't make them. And 
I think part of the reason everyone is so fixated on this is that it's a really great hour-long drama with obviously lots of comedy, as we've been saying, but like it's the satisfying, big, long thing that will be on for presumably several years. You can really dig your teeth into it as opposed to these kind of like limited series things, which can be really great, but it's just not the same as the experience of like a long American TV show, which like... Well, there's a lot of bad hour-long dramas on Netflix. They love an hour and five minute episode. No, but I mean like that will go on for, this is going to go on for years is my point. Like Mad Men or Breaking Bad or whatever. And that kind of like digging into a set of characters for a long period of time is a sort of traditional American TV mode. And um, that has gone out the window because everything is now a half hour or a limited series. And not I'm not saying that those forms can't be good. Like I love Barry and I love Sleabag and whatever, but they no one wants to commit or invest in these like long dramas anymore. But that's what the people love to watch as we are seeing with this and with all the people like binging the Sopranos or whatever. So uh, I appreciate that HBO is doing this for me. Thank you, HBO. And uh, yeah, Morgan and I both love to feel bad. Yes, exactly. I love to want to throw up the end after the season one finale of this or after I watched it, I literally had to go out for a walk because I was so upset. It was dark and raining and I like walked around the park so um, that's my recommendation. If you want to feel that bad, watch Succession. Great show. Uh, so next week we will have film festival coverage. I have already seen most of the movies I think I'm going to see for New York because the press screens are early. Um, I'm going to start this weekend writing up blog posts, which you will already have seen by the time this goes up. Uh, some of that will be up on our Patreon. And Gav will be in London probably around the time this is up watching movies at the London Film Festival. So we yeah. will be sharing notes. I think we'll have seen probably some of the same things, but probably a fair amount of different stuff because the New York lineup was a bit odd this year. Um, I was not thrilled with a lot of the films, actually, but I've seen a couple of good things and um, a couple of big things are still to come. I just saw The Irishman, which I did not care for. All the men loved it. So I'll have a differing view on that film for all of you. I'm not going to see that one, but I'm happy for the Scorsese fans who seems to really enjoy it. I'm really looking forward to the London Film Festival. There's a lot of really great stuff in there. I'm especially looking forward to The Lighthouse, the black and white miserable men in a lighthouse movie starring uh, Robert Pattinson. So, Yeah. I have, that was not here. That's coming out here in a couple weeks. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that, but I've not seen it yet. The best thing I've seen so far is Portrait of a Lady on Fire about 18th century French lesbians, which was I will be seeing that. Delicious. It is meant to be one of the best films of the year. A plus. Um, and next week I'm seeing Parasite, which everyone is obsessed with, and the new Noah Baumbach film Marriage Story, which I am very much looking forward to. So we will have lots of stuff to discuss uh, next week. Thank you as ever for listening. If you would like to subscribe to our Patreon and see our extra film festival coverage there, you can find that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gav, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, you can find my writing on The Daily Dot and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. We are on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.